Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm the deputy editor of Oil Daily, and this is the podcast for the competitive intelligence service of energy intelligence. Thanks for tuning in. Joining me today is Casey Merriman, who is the head of our competitive intelligence service. Hey, Casey. Hey, Luke. So we're recording this a little less than a week after the annual shareholder meetings of uh, U.S. supermajors Exxon, Mobil, and Chevron, which both delivered an unusual amount of drama as far as these things go. So just to briefly recap, both companies faced votes that were put forward by increasingly emboldened activist shareholder groups looking to press these super majors further on their energy transition strategies. Exxon saw the election of at least two new board members that were nominated by investor group Engine Number 1. A third nominee's fate uh, still kind of hangs in the balance as the company apparently continues to tally votes almost a week later. And then at Chevron, the big news was a resolution approved by 61% of representative shareholders for the company to start tracking and ultimately start reducing its scope three emissions or those that come from the products that it sells. So Casey, it's been a while since these general meetings have produced votes with such potentially strategy shifting implications for these Mm -hmm. companies. And and we'll get into what these votes mean for each company individually. But just at a high level, what should we take away from these votes in terms of where the investment community is today on the energy transition and, and what that means for the U.S. energy industry in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it without kind of overselling it, this is really the culmination of climate risk moving into the mainstream for U.S. investors, right? So before this year's kind of slate of AGMs, uh, three climate-related resolutions passed at U.S. oil and gas companies, period, right? And we've seen, you know, five major votes um, in a a board shakeup this time around. And in other instances, uh, you know, resolutions were pulled after essentially negotiations were made with with management to address what the resolution would would have pushed for. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what we really are seeing here is almost like an acceleration of what we we saw in Europe, right? So so there, the European uh, majors, it was first uh, all about disclosure, disclose your emissions, give us more information. And then it became, okay, set targets. And then the ask on those targets increasingly became more ambitious. And then it became set those targets and demonstrate to us, you know, execute uh, the kind of the medium term uh goals of those maybe like longer term ambitions. And so we're seeing this almost kind of compress. This isn't to say at all that U.S. oil companies are being asked to model what we're seeing in Europe. Um, It's really important to note that uh, around the scope three uh, emissions uh, proposals that we saw that these were not about setting net zero targets, but it was about doing something. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what is being asked is, you know, sorry, uh, we, we know that scope three is difficult to handle. We know that your scope three emissions are someone else's operational emissions, but but kind of too bad. You know, you mm-hmm. you have to bring something to, to the table here and, and demonstrate to us how you're going to be part of the solution, because this is a truly economy wide uh, task right? Decarbonization is is an enormous challenge. And so what U.S. producers are being asked for is to to put something concrete on the table. 
Yeah. And, and I guess it's just worth re- reminding or pointing out that, I mean, Exxon and Chevron had been, c- compared to some of their European peers, as you mentioned, had been really kind of, you know, resistant to at least to wrestling with some of these ideas. Yeah, absolutely. In, um, you know, even Conoco, too, in its case, I mean, as generally speaking among U.S. companies was seen as kind of one of the most, uh, you know, open to to moving on emissions and incorporating Paris climate agreement into its strategy but but there was this resistance at, at the scope three uh, is where it's kind of been the sticking point um, and and also to um, in the case of Chevron Exxon of, of setting those long-term targets even for their own internal emissions they've just really wanted to stick with you know what can we do in the next five years and while there's a logic to it uh, that's just not where the conversation is anymore mm-hmm um, all right. Well, let's just start with Exxon, since they will see the most significant immediate impact through this constitution of their of their board. Um, the two new names that we have so far are Keja Hitala, the former EVP of renewable products for Nesty, and Greg Goff, the former CEO of Endeavor. So what do we expect these two to bring to Exxon's board? And why were they the preferred nominees of the voters who supported them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to, to, to kind of take a step back. So these these two that we know for sure will be on the board uh, were among four that were nominated by uh, kind of an upstart activist group, uh, Engine Number 1. And if we kind of look at the makeup, I think it kind of speaks to what the wider investors are looking for, right? We had a CEO, a former CEO of a, of a wind company that is not on the board. Um, the, the synergies there were not necessarily seen by a uh, a majority of investors. The, the one that's on the fence um, is uh, works at Alphabet, right? The, the, the Google um, affiliate, and it has a, a lot of uh, experience in, uh, you know, emerging energy technologies, right? Bringing things to to you know commercialization uh, that are that are still maybe kind of in the pilot or conceptual stage, and and worked at the the Department of Energy as well in that form. Um, you know, and but what we see with the two that are for sure on there, they have direct oil and gas backgrounds, right? These these aren't, you know, extremists or you know, or this isn't, you know, um, you know, a Greenpeace, you know, representative or something like that. These are people that have tangible experience in oil and gas, you know, delivering returns. Um, in the case of of Nesty, you know, that's really a company that has worked to materially uh, shift its its focus from kind of conventional oil and gas downstream into renewables. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's those perspectives that, um, you know, a, a majority of investors really saw Exxon from benefiting from. And I think it's important to understand that these changes are in addition to ones that Exxon has made uh, in, a, in an attempt to try to kind of keep control of its board. Uh, Exxon has expanded its board in recent months. It now also has a, a longtime activist investor on its board. Um, mm-hmm. It added the former CEO of Petronas to to add some additional oil and gas experience. So really, you know, it's not that these board members are going to come in and like say do all the things that maybe the the most activist investors want. It's more about Exxon kind of not having this kind of insular 
almost like echo chamber where the only mm-hmm. voices in the room with that oil and gas experience are its own. And that, and that mm-hmm. the hope is that having this kind of diverse diversification will bring some new perspectives, right? Bring some different views of, of what these risks might be to its business and how to be more proactive in addressing them. Hmm. Let's just spend a minute quickly talking about engine number one, because uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how a lot of people know about them. Um, it's a tiny activist investor group formed just over, just a little over a year ago. Um, mm-hmm. So it has very little track record, but has been suddenly thrust into prominence. Uh, why have they targeted Exxon like this? And, you know, how have they managed to have such an outsized influence? Yeah. I mean, you're talking, it's a great question because you're talking about a group that owned 0.02% of Exxon shares, right? Um, Really, you know, in a lot of ways, you can actually put the climate stuff to the side. And this was, the the opening was about Exxon genuinely being brought to its knees financially, strategically. You know, it was, it was wanting to kind of insist that, you know, nothing had, had changed regardless of the energy transition, regardless of the, the COVID down, downturn and, and new questions around, you know, kind of demand resiliency and, and all these things. And it, it had a strategy that even before the downturn had it, you know, bleeding money and taking on debt and just wasn't sustainable. And they were so resistant to any calls for them to change that it materially hurt their share price. And they were just underperforming their peers and were really kind of at a moment of crisis and were really kind of humbled by by um, by the downturn in a way that others who were clearly stressed were not. And so that that provided the window. Um, mm-hmm. And so what engine number one kind of did very kind of su- successfully and strategically was with the board changes, you know, they picked nominees who they thought would resonate with a very wide swath of Exxon investors, right? So it, it um, and they, by doing so, the idea is that kind of at Exxon, the time for shareholder resolutions about singular topics, that moment has passed, right? That, that just too much change was needed at Exxon. Uh, their uh, willingness to engage with shareholders and to consider to consider resolutions, even that got a lot of support, has just oh, it's been long considered very poor. Um, they kind of don't. They kind of almost have have seen themselves as um, above the, the, these kinds of of considerations. And so it was it was really, if nothing else, to send a strong message. Um, but it it you know they 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 chose wisely in terms of their candidates. Like I said, maybe not all four made it, but uh, they, they picked ones that it was hard to make a credible, credible argument against. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's turn to Chevron, which has been a little more progressive than Exxon on climate, you know, relatively speaking. Um, they didn't have any board seats targeted this time around, but the resolution on scope three emissions is still kind of a shot across the bow, across the bow. How, how do you say that? I guess it's bow. I think it's bow. Yeah. <laughs> you shoot with a bow. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's not like you mentioned earlier, it's not unlike a similar resolution passed by ConocoPhillips shareholders a couple weeks prior. Mm-hmm. And of course, it is just a resolution on a topic that is still kind of poorly understood, that being scope three emissions, which we still aren't exactly sure how to quantify. Um, but how do we expect Chevron to react to this 
resolution that, again, is backed by a substantial majority of shareholders and, and really feels you know, more like a beginning of something than an end goal in and of itself. Yeah, I think that's a good a good way to kind of frame it. Um, it. You know, scope three missions, it's one of these things where they can be quantified and, you know, uh, Chevron uh, and, and very, very recently Exxon, they, they, they disclose them, but they're, but they're messy, right? As they said, you know, my scope three emissions can be someone else's scope one and, and there's all that overlap and who's really responsible. And the the industry has almost kind of gotten lost in that logic, right? And it is logical. It makes sense. Um, but it, it misses the point, which is that what investors are looking for is for you to be part of the solution. Put forward something. It's not enough to say, well, we advocate for an economy-wide carbon tax because that would be a very efficient way to deal with emissions, mm-hmm. right? What they are, are, are wanting is, is to say, well, you know, you are part of this value chain. So participate with the value chain to reduce emissions, right? Maybe that's partnerships. Maybe it um, it likely does involve some diversification. It doesn't necessarily have to be into like electricity, right? You don't have to become suddenly a, a power distributor. Um, but oil and gas can't necessarily be everything you sell. Um, or if it is, uh, you better be really, really bullish on carbon capture and storage or, you know, um, you know, or be willing to shrink. I mean, essentially um, what what investors are wanting to hear, um, you know, from Chevron, from Conoco is they what is their thinking? What is their strategy? What where where are they going to fit into the wider solution? And in, in Chevron's case, you know, they actually have done quite a bit in the past 18 months or so, where in terms of some small but commercial investments and things like renewable natural gas, they're stepping up their marketing of renewable diesel in in California, that is going to uh, help reduce their scope three emissions, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but, But it's like, okay, but we need you to tie a ribbon around it. How do you make those types of investments material? How do you make them scalable? How do you how does it become a you know a part of your business, not something you do on the side? And that's where the the targets k- kind of p- come into play, right? Is it, it it's a signal of the order of magnitude that these companies are putting forward, and then will be judged: is it sufficient? Is it not? You know, that's in the eye of the beholder, and it will likely change over time. Um, but that that's it, it will be an iterative process but that's that's where we are hmm. all right well so as we wrap up let's uh let's just try to answer the question that both these companies are probably asking themselves uh where do they go from here um mm-hmm. so let's just start with chevron uh what happens next yeah i mean the, 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 what we've kind of laid out is is i mentioned kind of at the beginning this accelerated timeline i mean it seems like by this time next year uh, not only will chevron need to develop uh, long-term targets for all of its emissions. It will also need medium-term targets that include scope three emissions. So it's going to have to actually sort that out. It can no longer just argue why it's difficult. It will have it will have to come up with something that it believes it is viable and 
sufficient. Uh, and maybe it'll be somewhere in between that, but that they're going to have to do that. And then they're going to have to start putting the meat on the bones, right? So then they're going to have to start saying around those medium term targets, well, this is more specifically what it, it will involve. I can't tell you what we'll do in 2035, but I can tell you what we'll do between now and 2030, and it's going to involve XYZ. And then they're going to have to start actually executing that. They're not going to have to obviously do all of it between now and a year from now, but they're going to have to start showing concrete examples of them actually starting to make those moves, those investments, laying the groundwork. Um, that's, that is a lot to do mm-hmm. in a pretty short amount of time, but I, we, we really, you know, this is this kind of acceleration uh, in almost like wave of investor um, uh, pressure is something that we've really been on top of uh, for the past few years in terms of its timing. And we just, this is really where we, we see it, it, it coming to a head. Hmm. And what about Exxon? Should we expect this new board to have an immediate impact on Exxon's broader strategy or how should we think about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in Exxon's case, it, you know, they, they have um, made, uh, like I said, as I said, they've made actually quite a number of changes in the past, you know, eight months in response to some of these pressures, right? I mean, they're not uh, growing anymore. They've, you know, resigned to spending significantly less, you know, CapEx. Uh, they have put forward in their view, they want to go kind of really big in carbon capture and storage, CCS, but it's very vague, Right. And so their challenge and what their board is going to be pushing them to to do is to define that. Okay, you know, you say you can go big in CCS requires policy support. Okay, that policy support isn't here right now. Not yet. You know, not not at, at the scale that you're talking about. So, so what are we going to do as a company, right? What, what is going to be Exxon's uh, plan of attack to, to get at that? Um, or, you know, where there are potential holes um, or opportunities, they're going to need to move quicker. So really the, the onus will be on that board to push something kind of more substantial than almost like the skeleton that they have put out in the past couple months. Hmm. So just a quick scorecard, or which of the two do you think is, uh, has the bigger task ahead of it at this, where we're sitting right now? Right. Yeah. I think, I think it's Exxon. Um, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I mean, kind of like Oxy, uh, an independent producer that does actually have a net zero scope three target, but it's dependent on uh, an emerging technology to, to, to break through. Um, when you kind of put all your eggs in one basket uh, and it's not necessarily commercially viable now, uh, that that's a hard, hard one to sell. Um, you know, whereas Chevron has kind of a lot of little things that are integrated into its business that it could, probably more easily make the leap to to scaling up. So uh, Exxon definitely has the harder challenge. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, um, it's all really interesting and definitely something that is going to keep us busy for yes. the next, <laughs> next foreseeable future. Um, so thank you very much, Casey. Absolutely. Thanks, Luke. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you'd like to see more of our news and views, please visit our website at energyintel.com where you can subscribe to any of our services and keep up with the latest developments from Exxon and Chevron and the rest of the energy industry. My name is Luke Johnson. We'll see you next time.